We're going to continue along in, in 2 John here. Um, and it's, it's fitting in the coming weeks as uh, we're embarking on the Reformation Day here on the 31st of October. Uh, so next week we'll actually be speaking more on that. And I think this is a good thrust here of Second John in this exhortation here that John gives us to continue to walk in, in truth and love. And those cannot be separated. And when they're separated, um, we're in error. And so uh, we'll be looking at that next week when it pertains to the, the Reformation. And, and so this morning, we've been going through uh, the past few weeks, hitting on these, this false teaching that John was uh, addressing, the Gnostic belief. And so, remarkably, this error continues to plague uh, our present day. And just to be reminded, Satan it, has nothing new up his sleeve. It, Everything he peddles is old. It's just recycled. And yet he manages to, to sell people, sell the world his, his rehashed nonsense because he knows that many people remain spiritually ignorant of the truth. And so throughout this letter here in Second John, we've explored nine verses so far. The first nine verses here... Um, it's, it serves as a, a vital warning against dangerous falsehoods, uh, heresies. Today, here, John, he transitions from theology to practice. Shifting from the whys, essentially, to the hows. So why do we do this? And this is how. This is the, the application aspect of John's writing. Putting it into practicality. Uh, in truth, this transition, it often resonates with more people uh, since many are, are primarily interested in practicality. They, they yearn for the action steps and sometimes neglect the, the, the abstract principles, the doctrine. Uh, the why matters less. It's, it's the what can I do that tends to capture the heart of people. But it is so imperative. It is so, it's so vital to, to know the why aspect, the doctrine. It is the, the, the catalyst for the application. We must know why before we take the, the, the steps and the practicality, the action steps. That's what motivates. That's the thrust that continues to, to, to move someone along. That's why James can proclaim where he says in, in chapter 1 of James, to count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. Because James there, he, he understood the doctrine. He understood that, that the testing of one's faith produces steadfastness. He understood the sanctification that was purchased on the cross. So, after these nine verses of, of doctrine... Uh, we hit on the sovereign election that we see at the very beginning of this letter as John the elder writing to the elect lady and her children. Uh, we see the Trinity. We didn't hit directly on this, but we see the Trinity in, in verse 3. We see sanctification throughout the second passage. We see the doctrine of the Antichrist. We see the, all these doctrines that John's laying out here for us. And now, John, he, he guides us into these two verses here that focus on practice. Here we discover what we ought to do when, when truth and love seem to be in conflict. He exhorted us to walk in truth and love, but what happens when they come into to conflict? John's counsel here, it may not be the most popular, but if you grasp the why, if you have grasped the why, the doctrine, if you have grasped your, your sovereign election to, to walk in truth and love, 
you'll come to appreciate the what you must do aspect. So it's important to remember that true Christianity fervently desires to obey God's commands. Fervently desires to, to walk in accordance to the Lord's desires. Walk in both love and truth. For too long, many have been misled into thinking that Christian love requires us to, to tolerate and to accept everyone and everything. We've been led to believe that uh, mere affiliation with Christianity, just to, to have the name of Christianity come out one's mouth, maybe a quote from the Bible, attendance at a church, that those things are what necessitates acceptance. Yet today, we'll see that the elder, the Apostle John, he disagrees with such thinking and living. There is a boundary to Christian love. That boundary is biblical truth. That is the, the line in the sand. Truth. So as we go through this, brace yourself. Brace yourself for what uh, many would label as the, the harsh reality of God's word. Anyone who presents a, a different Jesus... Even in a minor detail, it must be resisted with unwavering determination. We must never pursue unity at the expense of truth. Truth is where unity lies. Nor can we compromise our obedience to the name of love. We are to not tolerate sin for the sake of relationships when it comes to this specific sin here, which is, is an attack on who Christ is. So let's dive into this. Uh, Second John, uh, I'm going to actually start from verse 7 to kind of bring this into context, bring our minds back to, to verse 7 in this thread. So as always, uh, take heed of the perfect inerrant word of God as I read this morning. Uh, in today's message, we can title it, Resist. Resist, and I'm going to break it down into two sections here, falsification and instruction. So here's the word of God. Verse 7. For many deceivers have gone out into the world, those who do not confess the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh. Such a one is the deceiver and the antichrist. Watch yourselves, so that you may not lose what you have worked for, but may win a full reward. Everyone who, got, everyone who goes on ahead and does not abide in the teaching of Christ does not have God. Whoever abides in the teaching has both the Father and the Son. If anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, do not receive him into your house or give him any greeting. For whoever greets him takes part in his wicked works. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we... And we thank you each and every time we open your word for this precious gift that you have given us. Help us to walk in the truth and love that, that is exhorted here by your word. May your spirit press upon our hearts the truth. May we never separate truth and love. May we stand firm in the truth of your son Jesus. May we boldly proclaim that truth to a world in such a need of your grace. And if we're ever confronted with these false teachings that John warns us, may your spirit ground us. May we be rooted in your son Jesus. Father, help us. Give us your grace. We need your grace each and every day. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Okay, so before we dive into verse 10 and 11 here, I want us to explore some of the cultural backgrounds of hospitality. It's important that we understand this concept of hospitality 
that John is writing. Uh, he's writing this to the elect lady. He's also writing it to Gaius in, in 3 John. If you've gone ahead and read 3 John, you see it's the same theme of, of hospitality. And so uh, perhaps you've never considered it, but the word hospitality, it begins with the word hospital. And so our English word hospitality is, is derived from Old French, which in turn traces its origin to Latin, which Latin then draws its ancient roots in the term ghosty, which is uh, an ancient Indian term. And so you don't have to worry about that, that line of thread, but that's the origin, is, is the word ghosty, which means someone who takes someone else in or is, is a host uh, of a guest. And so this concept of hospitality it effectively transforms a stranger into a guest. It's, it's offering them a place to stay. It's integrating them into the, the host's family. It, it means more than just opening one's door to somebody. There's implications that come with that. In the, the Greek, the Greco-Roman world, uh, where travelers had absolutely no legal rights or protection, hospitality was imperative. It was, it was the lifeline for those people. Uh, again, a guest wasn't merely provided with shelter and a meal. They were embraced as part of the host's family in the host community. And so this transition from a stranger to a guest was imperative. It was monumental. In the Old Testament, we find examples of this. This isn't a new concept. In the Old Testament, uh, we see... We find examples of the travelers coming to, to private homes. Genesis 18, we see with Abraham. And he's welcoming the three heavenly guests, one being the Lord himself, a theophany, an appearance of Christ in the Old Testament. We see that Abraham embraces them, even washes their feet, takes them into his home, provides for them. The following chapter, Genesis 19, verses 1 through 4, we witness Lot and his hospitality with two of those heavenly visitors. The Lord was back on the hill with Abraham, and the two went into Sodom. Lot, he opened his door and gave hospitality to those heavenly visitors. Uh, just like Abraham, he, he, he fed them, provided them shelter from the, the menacing elements and the, the hostile inhabitants of the city. So the historical context of hospitality is what sets the stage of our understanding here of, of these crucial verses ahead here in 2 John, in verses 10 and 11. It, hospitality in, in those times meant that the host was responsible not only for offering sustenance and, and, and shelter, but also protecting their guests even to the point of laying down their lives, if necessary. So this significant cultural practice of hospitality, it, it carries over from the Old Testament into the New Testament. We see in Matthew 10, verses 9 through 14, uh, we encounter the, the records of Jesus sending out his 12 apostles to minister. They were instructed to travel without money, or extra clothing, relying instead on hospitality. Relying on the hospitality of, of those that they encountered. If a household welcomed the apostles, they were to extend a blessing to them. In the case of rejection, the apostles were to shake the dust from their feet as a symbol of, of contempt and a symbol of God's curse. Luke chapter 10 Verse 29 through 37, Jesus there, he shared the parable of the compassionate Samaritan, the one who cared for the, the wounded Jewish traveler despite their, their indifference, exhibiting true hospitality. He went to great lengths bandaging the man's wounds and ensuring that, that he recovered, providing for his recovery. The New Testament not only offers these examples of hospitality in an early Christian community, but it provides a, a clear commandment on this matter. 
several commandments. Romans 12, 13 calls believers to express their love uh, for, for other believers through hospitality. 1 Peter 4, 8 further emphasizes that it should be done without grumbling. Hebrews chapter 13 There we're reminded of stories from Genesis underlying why we as Christians should practice hospitality without complaint. For we may be unwittingly entertaining angels, whether that be heavenly hosts or or messengers from God. Either way, someone bringing the the message of, of Christ, the gospel. 1 Timothy 3, 2. Titus 1, both include hospitality as one of the the qualifications for church eldership. 1 Timothy 5.10, Paul discusses the the godly ministry of hospitality, indicating that a a widow is only eligible for assistance later in life if she practiced hospitality in her early years. So these are just, I know I'm giving you a laundry list of examples here, but I'm, I'm doing so just to bring our understanding to this, this uh, action of hospitality. It's not new. It's been practiced since the Old Testament. It's, we see it saturated in the New Testament. It's commanded in the New Testament. So as the apostles and the evangelists, they embarked on their journeys after uh, the ascension of, of Christ, they took the gospel to to the furthest reaches of the earth and hospitality became so crucial for them as they traveled and other traveling ministers went out into the world they relied on hospitality they relied on the hospitality of other believers in in these places where they ministered sometimes they went into places and there weren't even believers but they relied upon the lord and his provisions Preach the gospel with, with faith and fervency. We see that with uh, Lydia in Philippi. Uh, Paul and the crew, they get to Philippi and they're preaching the word to, to Lydia and, and the others that were there at the creekside. And, and the Lord opened her, her mind and her heart to understand the things in which Paul was preaching, the gospel. And then we see that Lydia was one who Uh, housed the church in Philippi in her home. This provision of staying true to the the truth of the gospel and not uh, manipulating it and not twisting it to to satisfy one's uh, fleshy desires. The early... Christian document known as the Didache. Spoke about it before. Uh, it's perhaps the earliest non-canonical writing uh, in the, the the early church. You know, post Christ's ascension. It's either that or the, the Book of Clement. But either way, it's a very early writing. The Didache. It means the teaching or doctrine. And that writing was between fifty and hundred A.D. is is when it was written. And it provides historical insight into the practice of early Christians regarding this right here, hospitality. Chapter 11 of the Didache, we find this instruction about Christian hospitality. It says this. I encourage you to check it out, but here's just a snippet of it. It says this. Let every apostle that comes to you be received as the Lord. But he shall not remain except one day. But if there be need, also the next. But if he remains three days, he is a false prophet. And when the apostles go away, let him take nothing but bread until he lodges. But if he asks for money, he is a false prophet. So we see here just in the early practice of hospitality that there's a stage that is set of uh, this understanding of today's passage here in 2 John. So let me read it again. Uh, verses 10 through 11. For if anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, do not receive him into your house or give him any greeting. For whoever greets him takes part in his wicked works. This is the first subject here, falsification. Verse 10 opens with, if anyone 
comes to you. A phrase that is reminiscent of Paul's stern words to the Galatians. If anyone comes to you preaching a different gospel, if anyone teaches otherwise to the gospel in which has been proclaimed to you. In, in both cases, there in Galatians and in here in our text, uh, we are warned of such individuals that they are, uh, are to be accursed and damned. He said, let them be anathema in the book of Galatians. In verse 9 here of Second John, reiterates that point. Emphasize that anyone who brings a message that is inconsistent with the doctrine of Christ, which includes his divinity, his humanity, his death, his burial, his resurrection, his ascension, his second coming, it's not abiding in the doctrine of Christ. Anything that, that goes against those doctrines says here in verse 9 that uh, so people do not have God. They do not have God. They're cursed. They're cut off from God. The biblical truth of who uh, Jesus is, it cannot be compromised. This is the foundation. It is the, the, the rooting and grounding of our faith. So John, he employs this term, teaching. If anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, a.k.a. doctrine, a word that is, it often carries a negative connotation among many churchgoers today. It, to many, the word doctrine implies something very complex, something dull, something impractical. However, the Greek word, you can perhaps guess what the Greek word is here for teaching, it's didache. Didache, it's, it signifies way more than just mere facts or figures. It embodies instructions that, that transforms one's will and one's life. Changes their life. The Lord uses His, His inerrant, perfect Word to transform people's lives. The Gospel message of Christ. Take somebody who's on the course and the path of the world, dead in their trespasses, and it makes them alive. Spiritually alive. Changes them. So this Greek word, didache, embodies that Transformation. It's the living and active word of God. So knowing the doctrine remains a, a, a catalyst for uh, obedience to the Lord. Let me give you an illustration here. Um, 17th century Puritan, John Owen. Amazing writings. The Lord used him to, to write so many uh, writings that that are timeless, they changed the world with his writings, uh, such as the, the Death of Death and the Death of Christ. He has another one called The Holy Spirit, his book called The Mortification of, the, of Sin, uh, books that I encourage you to have on your shelves and not collecting dust, but reading them. So knowing the background of Jonathan Owen. John Owen gives you insight to how the Lord used him to write these writings. So when you read these writings, they're saturated with proclamations of God's sovereignty, his, his plan, his purpose, his providence. You read the words of a man who desperately and joyfully clung to God's will. And so, we look at that, what's, what's the Why? What's the why? Why did this man have such a steadfast, steadfastness in the sovereignty of God? And such a steadfastness in, in the will of God? When we look into the history of John Owen. We look at the things in which he had gone through. 
had 11 children. One survived into adulthood, who then died shortly after being married. His wife died at age 44. Shortly after, he wrote a deeply moving and heartfelt tribute to her in his work that's entitled a, a it's entitled a, a Declaration and Vindication of the Doctrine of the Holy Spirit. Knowing Owen's life and what he faced sheds light on the type of man the Lord uh, molded him into. The type of man that, that, he, that the Lord used to, to, to write these deep convictions in each and every one of his pen strokes. So it's said to say, that's just a, a, an illustration of, of knowing the, the background gives us understanding of the practice. So knowing the doctrine gives us the thrust, the understanding of, of the what to do, the practice. So this illustration, this notion, it corresponds to Didache, the teaching, doctrine. And encourage us to, to complement or to, to contemplate not only historical facts from the past, but also the historical facts from our lives. What the Lord has done to, to, to shape our lives, our past, our present, and, and continues to shape our future. Matthew 7, verse 28 and 29, it underscores the, the profound teaching style of Jesus. He didn't merely rely on just surface level information. No, he's proclaiming the, the, the doctrine, the why. And so then, therefore, the how afterwards. He taught with authority, stirring deep thought and, and transformation. He spoke to the mind. He spoke to the heart. He spoke to the, the spirit of man. He did not just brush over the surface. The doctrine is important. The depth is important. John says, if anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, what teaching? He's, he's referring back to verse 9, the teaching of Christ. The, the teaching of Christ, of who Christ is. The God-man. Considering that Jesus was truly divine and truly man is, is indeed a fact. It's a fact. It's undeniable. This fact carries weight and significance in, in your life right now, in my life right now. Understanding that Jesus, as the God-man, could die for your sins is so vital. If, if he hadn't become human, if he had not become flesh, there would be no sufficient sacrifice. If he hadn't become human, there'd be no resurrection, both bodily and spiritually. There'd be none of that for you and I. But Christ, with love for the Father, out of love for, for his people, he wrapped himself in flesh, became the su sufficient sacrifice the one without spot, the one without blemish, the one without wrinkle, the perfect sacrifice. Him who knew no sin became sin on our behalf, stood in our place. The second Adam, redeeming man. Without his resurrection, your future resurrection would be in jeopardy. The same power that, that raised Christ from the dead is the same power that lives in you. All those who are believers, it lives in you. That same power transformed your uh, heart of stone into a heart of flesh. It's the same power that helps you walk in the love and truth. The same power that keeps you and holds you, abides in you. These facts 
uh, ought to provoke us. It's, it's a profound contemplation, uh, not merely to just remain information in our minds, but to put into practice as the catalyst that thrusts us forward who Christ is, both his divinity and his humanity, the doctrines of Christ. John's warning here, it pertains to those who propagate falsehoods, those who, who contradict the true doctrine of Jesus. These are not your average neighbors. This is not a call to close your door to every person who sins. You'd be closing yourself out of your own house. It's not what this is. These are those who come as official messengers, like salesmen or, or evangelists. John, he addresses false teachers here. These are, again, not your average everyday acquaintances. These are individuals who endeavor to convert you to their, their misguided beliefs. These are those who seek to uh, latch a, a snare to your ankle. Attempting to convince you of their false doctrines and, and trying to convince you that they align with Scripture. It's so imperative. So imperative that, that we answer the command of putting on the full armor of God. Those who are not in the Word uh, become a prime target for deception. Groups like... Uh, Mormons, Jehovah's Witness, uh, the truth be told, they, they tend to avoid individuals who are well-versed in the Bible. They actually carry a list of, of, of people who they've answered, their, you know, went to the door and they've answered and, and they were well-versed in Scripture. That's why you typically don't ever see them come back. They make note of that. They know that they are not able to, to convince you because you're grounded and rooted in the truth. So if someone comes to your door and presents a different Jesus than the one found in Scripture, uh, you're commanded to do what John wrote. And this is the instruction. This is where the, the, the harsh words of, of, of the Scriptures that people will term as being harsh but in reality, it is, it's, it's answering this command for your benefit to, to keep your household from being diluted with false teachings. Here, the instruction. John, he commands, he says, do not receive him into your house. That does not mean don't talk to them. Because I said, if someone comes to your door with a false teaching, provide them the truth. And may the Lord change their heart. It does not mean to be rude. It does not. Uh, there's still the, 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 the Christian love that extends to all people. So this is not advocating to be rude. Not at all. It says, do not receive them into your house. And in this context of, of early Christian community where, where they met in homes, they met in homes of, of believers, it implies refraining from welcoming them into your place of worship. Your home ought to be a place of worship even today. Remember in the Roman Empire, Christians, they often gathered in homes of, of wealthier believers such as Lydia, and church buildings were illegal. This practice continued until the 4th century when Christianity became legalized in the Roman Empire. So understanding and defending biblical doctrine is essential to, to ward off uh, false teaching and to, to protect your faith and protect your household and to protect your fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. Again, these, these warnings here, 
uh, he's writing to believers. John's writing to uh, the elect lady. It's fair warning that even those who are in Christ, those who are the elect believers, I can still be snared by false teaching, still be pulled down by false teaching. He's saying here, do not open your home to these individuals who bring a, a distorted version of Jesus. Do not bring them into your personal residency. Don't welcome them into your church building where you gather to worship. In other words, don't entertain deceivers in your private space during the week or within the church on Sundays. Again, this is not an exhortation to not ever have your unbelieving friend over to your house for dinner. It's not what this is saying. This is, this is a whole different category of people. Have your unbelieving friends over for dinner. Be the, the, the light unto their life. This is bringing someone who is uh, spewing heresy into your home, into your church. Further, John advises against greeting these people. Greeting is, is different here than what we, uh, a lot of times, maybe our, our minds initially go to. Where we greet and sometimes just think of it as just a, uh, a mere exchanging of pleasantries. It's not, that's not what it is here. It, early, in the early Christian community, we, I mean, it's, it's, so beautiful how they greeted one another. Uh, they used phrases such as grace to you and peace from God, our Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace and peace multiplied. These aren't just exchanging pleasantries. John's injunction here means a refraining from offering blessings of God's grace, mercy, peace, love. Someone who brings a false version of Jesus. Even saying the word goodbye. Don't want to put any like legalism on this, but digging into these, these origins of these greetings, our English word goodbye, it's an acronym. It is a condensed version of God be with ye. We're bringing that back. It's amazing. It means so much more than saying goodbye. And God be with you. This command may seem harsh to some. Remember, John, he is primarily addressing those who claim to be Christians but disagree with the fundamental biblical truths of Christ. The things that you cannot get wrong. I mean, R.C. Sproul even once said that the greatest theologians are only 80% correct. The other 20%, they don't know that they're wrong. But within that 80%, the doctrine of Christ is so clear. You cannot get that wrong. It is, it is damnable if we get that wrong. Again, it's not about showing kindness to those with minor theological differences. We should do that. For instance, if you disagree with your fellow believer on the matters of, of pedo and credo baptism, you should still maintain fellowship. You should still greet them into your house. John's concern is false teachers who, who misrepresent the essential truths of our faith, the doctrine of Christ. John urges us to stay separate from those who profess Christianity but promote a different version of Jesus. There are many versions of Jesus. There's only one true Jesus. This is a practical command that protects our faith. Jesus describes such individuals that come with this teaching as, as ravenous wolves in sheep's clothing. So for there's no reason to extend good wishes 
to those who bring a false Jesus, as their intentions are, are deceptive. So as practical as this command may be, it is crucial for our, our spiritual well-being to, to maintain this command. John's not, again, advocating isolation by any means, but warns us against compromising the truth for the sake of unity. That's where the, the, that line in the sand is drawn. Truth and love are inseparable. Accepting those who promote a different Jesus, it suggests uh, accepting their false teaching. John, he warns, for whoever greets him takes part in his wicked works, joins together with them in their wicked works. Offering even the smallest welcome may imply acceptance of their false doctrine. This can mislead other believers, giving them a reason to accept these false teachers. If I were to accept a false teacher into my house and uh, treat them like a brother and give them shelter and sustenance and a place to, to camp... It would be easily seen as, as that, would be, that would be me saying I accept this teaching. It could be detrimental. I use myself as an example, but this goes with all of us. It's essential to protect your fellow believers from the influence of false teachers. So providing... Hospitality to false teachers can inadvertently uh, refresh them, you know, refresh them in their deceptive mission. Right? Think about this. If the devil came to your door and you invited them in and, and you provided him a, a glass of water to refresh him, you're helping him in his pursuit to deceive. In a similar manner, why why would you greet one of his false preachers? And again, that greeting extends. It's not just saying hello. So remember, the goal of of resisting these false teachers is to safeguard the truth. And it's prevent them from from leading you or others astray. As John mentioned in in verse 8, The aim is to avoid losing what you have worked for, to receive a full reward. Don't let deceivers jeopardize your spiritual progress. Don't let them tarnish your testimony. Don't let them mislead others into their their pursuit of, of sanctification. Instead here, John, he's proclaiming to to stand firm, to stand firm and to resist their their false teachings, to be grounded and rooted. The Lord Almighty has called you, and he has called you out of darkness and into the light. Do you believe that? Do you believe what Christ has, has done on the cross? Do you understand your status before a holy God without Christ? That status that is marked by titles such as liar, thief, adulterer, coward, swindler. It says none of those will enter into the kingdom of heaven. They'll be cast into the lake of fire. That is the status without Christ. Understanding that, that we fall short of his glorious standard. That understanding of the great and glorious news of Christ. What he has done standing in our place. Taking the, the just punishment that we owe. Upon himself, the one who did not deserve. 
boring in his body the sins of all those who believe. He's died, buried, resurrected, purchasing a people. Do you believe that the Spirit has, has entered into your life and has imputed that light of Christ into you? Do you believe that? Do you know that? He has called you to be a pillar and a foundation of the truth, a steward of the good word, an ambassador to the king, an ambassador who carries a message of eternal, transcendent value. Eternal value. The truth. The truth of, of the why. So many people struggle with what is the purpose? What is the purpose? What is the purpose of my life? They can only be found in the truth of our Lord and Savior. big stewards of the good news. This is your calling. To be a pillar of the truth. To bring glory and honor to our Lord. So knowing that, knowing that is your, your calling, there's this exhortation here to guard yourself from those who distort the gospel message. Do not allow that to creep into your mind. Here's the thing, you will likely never have one of these deceivers come to your door seeking hospitality, seeking a place to, 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 to shelter and to set up camp. I don't, you know, some of you may have, I, I don't, it's not a common thing, but it surely, surely can happen. In today's world, there are so many other ways in which they peddle their deceit TV, radio, internet, social media. Just a, a clicking follow brings them into your place of worship. That is probably one of the most places that the, the, the largest place of, of the peddling of deceit is social media. And again, that's not inherently evil social media. But this this warning to not, not receive them into your mind and into your heart, into your place of worship. It's imperative. Just know the armor is still the same. The armor remains the same. The armor is, is living and, and, and breathing. Never returns void. It's the word of God. The armor is, is still sufficient. Knowing the, uh, the authentic, uh, you will recognize the counterfeit. When you know the scriptures, not saying that we have to know Revelation, Genesis to Revelation, word for word, we'll spend lifetimes and lifetimes and you won't get to that point. But we must, must know the doctrines of Christ. We must know who Christ is. We must know what he has done. One, to be saved. We must know his atoning work to be saved. Know the gospel message and believe it, to trust in it. From there, it's, a, it's an adding to the armor, the, the doctrines of God, knowing more and more of who God is, knowing his attributes, knowing the one who saved you. It starts, it starts with 
knowing the gospel message. It starts with believing in him who came and died on the cross, the God-man, truly God and truly man. The one who suffered the wrath of God. The one who purchased that reconciliation between man and God. The one who broke down the, the wall of hostility. It starts there. If you haven't wrestled with that, you must. Your eternal destination hinges upon it. You must confront the sin in your life. You must look to the Savior, the one and only Christ Jesus. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, uh, we thank you so much for your abiding spirit. We thank you for, for your sword of truth. We thank you for uh, revealing us that truth. Father, help us each and every day to be uh, an ambassador, a steward, a good steward of, of your truth, of your gospel. Help us to be reminded of that each and every morning that we wake up, each and every day that we lay our heads down. Father, I pray that as we approach your Lord's Supper, as we partake in the elements that you set him aside for a holy use and that we are brought to, to remembrance of, of this, the magnitude of the sacrifice of your son. Purchasing the, the, the imputation of the truth in all those who believe. Help us that, to be a reminder to be rooted and grounded in your truth. To not waver, to not uh, waver from truth for the acceptance and for unity. Father, keep us. Father, lavish us with your grace. We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen.